Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce George Seraphim to the podcast. George the Jakursky Family Associate Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, where he recently received tenure. He has a wide range of research interests, including international business, corporate governance and corporate reporting, but has a special focus on sustainability. He's presented his research in over 60 countries and one of the most popular business authors, according to rankings of the Social Science Research Network. George co-founded KKS Advisors in 2013 with the goal of applying robust academic research to support organizations to develop effective strategies for sustainability. So thank you very much, George, for taking the time to speak today to the sustainability agenda. Thank you very much, Fergal. It's a pleasure to connect with you and your listeners as well. Well, fantastic. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you. I know you spend a lot of time thinking about sustainability, corporate sustainability, how investors think about sustainability. Um, I think it's going to be a great interview. Now, you're a professor of business in, uh, there you go. You're a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. How did you get involved in uh, sustainability and where, where is your interest? So, uh, a couple of years ago, actually about 10 years ago, as I was uh, doing research on capital markets and formation and uh, uh, how we can make better allocation decisions to create a stronger economy and as a result jobs um, and prosperity for people, I started realizing that we're facing some very, very significant problems. Um, the climate change problem is one, and environmental degradation uh, in general. The inequality problem is another one, especially in inequality of opportunities, uh, the, the extent to which people can access education, healthcare, uh, basic financial services, and so forth. And of course, the problem also of uh, chronic capitalism and corruption, kind of like the degradation of the institutions that actually support uh, free and fair markets. And one of the things that I started thinking about was that, um, of course, uh, governments and regulation is part of the solution to many of those problems. Uh, and we need proper, proper and smart regulation. But many of those problems are actually global in nature. Uh, they're also long-term in nature, uh, not uh, fitting the four-year term cycles of many of the governments that we have. And also governments actually have... Uh, have declining resources to deal with many of those problems. At the same time, I looked at business, which is kind of like my audience and uh, what I have been teaching here at Harvard and in my research. And uh, business are increasing, increasingly global institutions. Uh, they have immense resources. Uh, they are dynamic and innovative as organizations. And they are, you can say, you can make the claim uh, that many of them are also, from a corporation perspective, absent of the problem of short-termism, that is a human problem, it's a, it's, a, it's a managerial problem, but the corporation itself is a long-term institution. As a result, I felt that it is actually in the best interest of business as a whole, as an institution, to actually address many of those problems. And of course, it's not in the best interest of particular corporations, so individual corporations that might have misaligned in sense with some of them, but definitely business as an institution, uh, they will be better off by tackling those 
big problems. So I teach this course, Reimagining Capitalism, Business and Big Problems, at the elective curriculum of the MBA here at Harvard. And uh, we deal with those kinds of big problems with the underlying idea that it is the best interest of business as a whole to tackle those problems. Great. Now, for a long time, I think in America, people were influenced uh, by this idea. I think Friedman, who said the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. Is this still the case or to what extent how, do you think um, this, the ideas and, and goals are, are changing to take into account what you're talking about here, these ESG factors and the sustainability issues? And maybe if you could then talk about what you think are one or two of the biggest changes, steps that have taken place? So, Fergal, it's an excellent question. And I actually taught uh, in my class, uh, Milton Friedman, just uh, last week. So we actually read the piece uh, and we had different perspectives uh, um, coming from different readings and so forth. So we debated. So let me start by saying that, uh, you know, the idea of free and fair markets actually is a very powerful idea. And um, and it resonates in, in many respects with me um, because of the basic underlying argument that if markets uh, work well, so if you have property rights that are enforceable, if you have no externalities, if you have no agency problems, if you have complete knowledge and information and so forth, actually markets are extremely powerful in allocating resources and as a result generating uh, prosperity and freedom, uh, both economic freedom and political freedom. Uh, the problem is that in many respects, markets are not free or fair. And that's where the theory breaks down. And that's what we discussed in class as well. And the question is, what do you do then uh, when markets are not free or fair? And also, it's, uh, it's very important to uh, understand that uh, in, in many cases in the real world, what we have is uh, we have tremendous problems in terms of like under-provision of public goods. Uh, and we have tremendous externalities. And the question is, uh, what do you do when you have those externalities and when you have those public goods? How do you act in the presence of them? Also, another criticism is that um, in the presence of um, large technological changes that we're facing right now uh, that uh, are shifting uh, power and wealth towards a very small part of the population, because uh, a large part of the population actually doesn't have, uh, never had the opportunity, the educational opportunities, the healthcare opportunities, and so forth, to be at the same uh, playing field. Um, how, how do we feel about that, about that increase in inequality? So even if free in markets are like perfect on that domain, that is a problem. And of course, there's an underlying problem as well, which is um, how do you create all these institutions, all these inclusive institutions that support free and fair markets? In many cases, those institutions don't exist. Um, an unbiased kind of like a free press, uh, proper rating agencies, um, good information, uh, and, and, and so forth. So you need to place uh, this uh, market theory that Friedman advocated within grounded and grounded in a set of uh, inclusive institutions that work for everybody on those kind of like uh, norms, rules of behavior and organizing factors that help everybody. And I think for me, the whole sustainability uh, wave is around how do we create those institutions 
that can help us support uh, better markets in order to allocate prosperity to everyone. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's actually a lot about that. So the idea of Milton Friedman market theory has been a powerful idea. It, ha- it is an idea that still, I would say, um, resonates very much within the business community. I think there are good reasons for that, but also there are very good reasons why that theory breaks down. And the question is, what do we do about it? So for me, the whole sustainability in ESG space is trying to provide some uh, solutions, some answers uh, to those kind of breakdowns. Right. How far have we come? What, 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 what progress has been made? What would you say are a couple uh, of key milestones that are, you think, really significant in this move? I think uh, a couple of them, right? Uh, so from a time series perspective, going back in time, I think we have come a long way. Um, many more companies are actually integrating at the core of their business uh, sustainability factors. Uh, many more investors uh, are actually starting to use the data, advocate, engage with companies. So we have come a long way, but still we have a long way to go. So if you look at the corporate perspective, from example, uh, from a corporate perspective, many uh, companies are still stuck in this idea of like just cost savings. So how we do we reduce a little bit energy savings? How do we do uh, not have uh, child labor in our supply chains and so forth? Uh, so it's very much a risk minimization. And all these are wonderful things and companies should be doing them. But very few companies have moved into that perspective of innovation and growth. So how can we actually use sustainability as an engine for innovation growth and providing solutions to the problems? And I think that's where the sustainable development goals come as well, because they can actually concentrate you on providing solutions to our most pressing problems. On the investor side as well, uh, something that we have found is that uh, most of the investors are saying that um, they're using ESG data or they have ESG products, but most of them, what they're basically doing is um, is doing negative screening. Uh, so either excluding some companies with controversies or uh, excluding whole industries. And we have found that in our research as well in the data. But that is not capturing really the, um, the power of the process in terms of like, uh, how do you actually make change happen? So I think if you ask me what's the final destination for that, the final destination is for us to reflect in market prices the social impact that companies are having. In order to do that, what you need to do is actually very rigorous research and analysis about how a company is having a material impact on society and how that impact is being translated into future costs or uh, revenues or risks and, and so forth. And I think for us to get there, companies need to get better in terms of like both management but also disclosure of many of their sustainability issues and investors need to get better in understanding the implications of the sustainability activities of companies and the social impact that they're having. Right. And what, 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 what was driving companies? Why should they do this? I mean, clearly, we, we'd like to see more organizations create social change, deal with social problems. Companies, as we understand them, 
uh, for the most part, are about making profits and, you know, maximizing profits in many senses. That's seen to be generally agreed as the fiduciary role, um, or, you know, that companies need to be, you know, maximizing profits. So what are the drivers that would actually, you know, you, 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 you point out that many are, are looking at some of these ESG factors from a risk perspective, but, you know, as far as it, growth and innovation are concerned, you know, what are the drivers there, George? A couple of them. So traditionally, people have been making the case of why to do this on the cases of um, um, rationalizing cost structures, so reducing costs and making operations more lean. Um, also rationalizing this in terms of uh, employee engagement uh, and employee motivation, that employees care deeply about that. So as a result, uh, being seen as a sustainable organization will increase uh, the intrinsic motivation of employees. Uh, people have been justifying that also in terms of like uh, customer loyalty and satisfaction, experience, and so forth, that actually customers uh, want this. Um, of course, uh, people are justifying that on the case of uh, reducing your cost of capital, basically, um, through reducing risk for the organization, and that is reflected in the higher valuation and so forth. But I think uh, for me, all these explanations go some way, but they are not going all the way in terms of uh, understanding how you can actually transform an organization. And I think that transformation process can happen only if you can deeply embed the organization within um, the society that uh, that is also changing very, very fast. And that's the idea of transformational change. So, for example, if you look at um, some of the developments that are happening, let's say, in the transportation sector, in the case of mobility, something that I have been working now uh, for a couple of years, one of the issues that uh, you find there is that the megatrends are pointing towards uh, a future of mobility that is autonomous, electrified, and, uh, and shared. Um, and I think these are, to me, this is a paradigm of shift towards sustainability because once you move there, actually safety increases dramatically. Um, the cost of transportation decreases dramatically, allowing um, people in vulnerable communities and disadvantaged populations to be able to move at a much lower cost, having a direct effect on inequality. And, of course, air quality and uh, climate change are actually um, benefiting uh, dramatically from this, from this fundamental change. Now, how can you make uh, an automobile manufacturer move towards there? That has little to do right now with uh, employee motivation or customer loyalty and satisfaction or lean construction and so forth. It requires a vision. It requires leadership. It requires actually... Um, deep management responsibility in understanding where the world needs to move and why that would be actually a better world uh, for, for, for many of us. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, all these prior motivations that I mentioned, I think they're great motivations for incremental change, but not for transformational change. Transformational change requires vision, requires like big investments and as a result big risks as well and that is why transformational change is also very hard and very very few organizations are able to achieve that so if you look at um what is happening right now for example with uh with uh, amazon or what is happening with tesla and so forth these are organizations that are being led by visionary leaders that are having a very very different um 
picture of the future uh, compared to all their peers. And that's why they're transforming industries, but also their organizations. Absolutely. And, and is the question, I guess, to some extent is, is this going to remain a kind of niche thing with maybe, you know, 3% of corporations or 5% of corporations, you know, pursuing a sustainability strategy? Or do you see this really going really mainstream? And, and what would be the next step, do you think, towards that? I think uh, we need to differentiate and we need to define sustainability to be able to answer your question, Fergal, on that. So I think a good distinction is, um, in some sense, if sustainability is a source of competitive advantage or if sustainability is actually a standard of doing business, right? And I think that's a useful distinction. So it depends how do you define sustainability. If you define sustainability as basically you know, having kind of like best-in-class employee safety systems and making sure that you don't have like huge risks in terms of environmental and social issues in your supply chain and so forth. I think those things are becoming table stakes uh, increasingly. So these are things that are not going to give you a competitive advantage. These are going to become issues that are just going to be standards of doing business. Uh, how can you be a competitive organization in the consumer goods sector? you need to be doing all these things. Um, and the reason why this cannot be a competitive advantage, of course, is because the barriers to entry are going to be very, very low for anybody. So you are not going to be able to differentiate yourself. And I think many organizations fall into this trap where they feel that they can differentiate themselves by doing all these things and they think that they will get a product market advantage and of course there is no product market advantage uh, to all these things. So that is one definition of sustainability. Now there is a different definition of sustainability which is um, basically satisfying some, some heterogeneous preferences in the product market or in the labor market and so forth. So actually differentiating yourself actively. So you're a consumer good company that says, I'm making a big commitment that we will actually um, be able to provide only high nutrition, kind of like uh, food of, and beverages of high nutritional value. And this is kind of like our brand. This is our like, niche. This is our strategy and so forth. Um, there you can get a, different, a, a competitive advantage uh, to the extent that the product market is willing to source your products because you're actually differentiating yourself. The same thing if you are in the retail space and you're a retailer uh, like Costco, for example, and says, look, we'll just pay our people better. So we'll have like um, double um, the salaries that uh, Walmart and Target and everybody else will have uh, because we actually feel that this increased productivity and this aligns also with our um, mission of having uh, a much better experience uh, for the customer. So, so some of those kind of like sustainability issues can provide a competitive advantage in the sense that uh, the barriers to entry for other people are much higher because they are not aligned with their own strategy that they're pursuing. So I think you, to answer that question, you need to differentiate between what kind of sustainability issues are you discussing. Again, in the case of kind of like uh, risks and compliance issues, I think those are going to become table stakes and to a large extent they have already already become. Um, there are other types of issues that you align with your brand and with your corporate identity and the purpose of the organizations. And that could definitely be a source of competitive advantage. Right. Now, I was, I was interested to see in the latest, uh, I think it's a PWC uh, CEO survey, 
of of uh, CEOs, what's on their mind, and they also break it out by geographical region. But write down uh, number eight, or is it number nine on their list of issues, of threats, is the question of climate change. And that quite surprised me. I don't know how you, you feel about that. Climate change and environmental damage comes after, you know, populism, increasing tax burden, speed of technological change. That raises questions in my mind, how much attention that CEOs can actually give to these questions, how, how, how much is on the radar, how much they care about this. And yet, by any definition, you know, climate change has to be one of the biggest environmental and one of the ones uh, issues and the, one of the ones that is the most urgent to be solved. Absolutely. But uh, at the same time, um, what you're asking those people is, in some sense, prioritize um, short-term immediate effects uh, compared to kind of like longer-term megatrends as well. And of course, climate change is having immediate effects. But if you ask somebody in a survey about what are you worried more, how your taxes are going to change in six months from now, or about climate change, of course, they're going to. So I don't think you can make that much out of this kind of surveys. I think it is by construction of the survey. Right, right. Because I guess you were talking about this short-term question versus the longer-term question. And I, I, I take your point completely about the nature of corporations being longer-term, but there does seem to be evidence that, you know, investors are short-term or very short-term in some cases. And indeed, you know, uh, sometimes it's driven by technology and sometimes driven by indices as well. So to what extent do you think that uh, investors... Uh, are able to take longer-term perspective. And what effect does that have on the priorities? Because as you say, if you're looking over the next three, six months, but if you're continually looking over the next three, six months, and you're not looking at the next three, five, 10, 20 years, you're not going to be able to deal with those bigger questions. My own research shows that actually the problem of short-termism rests with uh, weak managers and weak organizations. Um, so what is happening is that uh, in, in some sense kind of like when some organizations are not uh, managed as, as properly as possible, uh, they fall into bad performance and they become really praised. Uh, they become a prey to the short-term orientation of a segment of the market, actually. And that then reinforces even further um, that deterioration of performance, and eventually they're being taken private uh, in order to be re restructured by a private equity firm or something like because actually they can't survive in public markets. Um, but also there is a myth out there that I won't dispel, which is basically the market is short term and there is nothing that you can do as a manager. I think that is a myth that has been perpetrated for, for uh, and that has been diffused for a long time by people that actually haven't been looking at the data. And what they, actually the data suggests is that as a manager, you have a lot of agency um, in the system and that you can, uh, to a certain extent, take actions, uh, shield the corporation uh, from short-term um, forces and behaviors, and also that uh, there are many investors out there that are not short-term oriented. Uh, but in many cases, the problem is that the management doesn't provide a long-term view. So when the short-term view is very clear about what you need to do in terms of like maybe divest an a part of the organization or repurchase shares and so forth, uh, actually many management teams, they don't have a proper long-term 
uh, view, and they cannot actually communicate that with conviction and with uh, with numbers in order to build trust, trust and confidence in the company in the market. And I think that's actually where part of the problem rests in this kind of like misalignment between uh, the certainty with which you can understand the direction of the company in the short term versus the long term. And as a result, when you have that, when you have an organization that is unable to communicate a long term vision for the organization in a concrete strategic way, then um, most of the investors will take the short term. Right. And so, so there's data now to to support this because I, I, I do remember back, it's probably not up to date in this, but, you know, significant differences, for example, between performance of family owned businesses and public corporations in terms of their ability to think long term because of questions, you know, being public and so forth. And, and, and as you mentioned, some of the co- companies being taken private as well. But it, it, is there good data now to show what you're saying there, I guess, about um, the, the short termism not being what one thinks? Yeah, it's it's just a much more complicated problem. I think it's always very very easy, uh, especially in the in the environment that we're living in, to just make um, you know easy statements in 140 characters on Twitter uh, and to kind of like characterize basically everything as kind of like you know investors bad, you know the market is short term, and so forth. Um, but the reality is actually much more complex on the ground and. Of course, there are parts of the investment management industry that have very, very strong incentives. uh, And as a result, they create uh, bad pressure on the companies. But on the other side, there are many, uh, there are some companies that are not actually delivering performance and they are unable to communicate the long-term vision for the company. So the natural orientation then is for investors to try to find short-term fixes and solutions to some of those problems. So it's a, it's a complicated situation there. Yes, talking about investors, and clearly there's been massive uh, strides made in terms of, uh, I guess, various different measures, but in terms of impact investing, in terms of uh, integrating ESG to various degrees, I guess, in a investment decisions, and you've touched on this earlier. How much impact is this having? I mean, what would you say is the scale of, of um this activity at the moment, how how widespread it is, and how influential is it? What impact would you say it's having? Uh, this is an excellent question, Fergal, especially because uh, what you hear out there is very impressive numbers all the time. Like right? sixty trillion have signed, uh, have become signatories to use the ESG data, and and so forth. So very very impressive numbers. I think the reality on the ground is very very different, which is basically. As I mentioned before, what most of those numbers reflect is just some screens uh, applied to the portfolio, mostly in terms of like uh, negative screening. And I think that situation is changing as data is getting better and as more and more um, finance uh, professionals are being educated in ESG analysis and uh, the usefulness of that kind of uh, approach, uh, but that is a slowly moving, uh, I would say, trend. Uh, people need to understand uh, both the idea of materiality, which is um, what are the most material sustainability issues for the company that you are trying to analyze and try to understand, what are the points of contact that are really meaningful between uh, the company and its societal impact, and also what is the role of catalyst events. 
um, how are you expecting that prices are going to reflect uh, that information that you're getting in the environmental, social, and governance domain. Um, so the, I, I think the impact so far has been uh, more probably on the indirect engagement side as more and more people, as more and more investment organizations are developing uh, the ability to actually be uh, active owners, uh, to have private dialogues with companies to try to move them um, in a direction that improves their ESG performance. Also, um, from the perspective of uh, voting their shares, an exercising voice. Uh, so I think uh, from that perspective, um, most of the impact that we have seen so far, and this could change in the future, I think it's coming more from the engagement side rather than on the um, direct kind of cost of capital side. Right. And presumably this question of the risk side of things, and um, you've seen some of the big uh, institutional investors talking about this asking companies to be clearer about the risks, the climate change risks and other dimensions like that. Um, Now, uh, linked to this, and I guess it's something that we need to address just to talk a little bit about, uh, this question about the fiduciary responsibility of of companies, and we touched on a little bit to maximise returns for shareholders. I'm just wondering... Uh, how legally binding is this? And uh, I know I've spoken on the podcast with um, uh, with a colleague of yours from London Business School who talked a little bit about, uh, Yanis, about about the evolving stakeholder view of, of, of the firm. Um, and I know that Arissa in, in 2015 um, in, in, in the US talked about um, uh, non-financial consideration, taking that into account when investing in companies. Um, so I, I'm just wondering, to what extent is that a, uh, a legally binding responsibility? And to what extent do you think that is, is it actually, even if it's not, not, not legally binding, is it uh, holding, uh, influencing the way boards uh, be? Absolutely. Uh, it's an excellent question. And uh, let me separate two things. First of all, on the ERISA side, which is about pension fund trustees' uh, duties, um, there has been now a clarification that actually ESG factors um, can and in many cases should be taken into consideration. Why? Because they're actually material economic factors. And we know from uh, research that uh, myself and colleagues uh, have conducted that um, material uh, sustainability factors are actually um, predictive of uh, future performance, future stock returns, future accounting performance, and so forth. So as a result, if you're a fiduciary uh, and you don't take into account material, environmental, and social issues, actually you're not uh, fulfilling your uh, responsibilities in many sense. So that makes uh, a lot of sense. Now on the board of directors side, on the corporate side, um, the, the duties of, of the board is to the corporation itself. Um, it's not in uh, my understanding is that uh, absent of uh, changes in control transactions, so acquisitions and mergers and so forth, there is no uh, duty uh, that directors have here in the U.S. to actually maximize stock prices. Um, their duty is to the long-term uh, prosperity of the corporation. 
itself as an entity. So the only exception that uh, the courts here have uh, ruled on is uh, when there is a change in control and tra- transaction, and then the courts have ruled that um, investors come first and the directors have a duty to um, maximize basically the the bidding price uh, for the organization. And the the way to rationalize that is that basically there is no long-term then for the corporation. The corporation is going to basically be subsumed by another company. And that's why um, investors come first. But in all other cases, the duty of the board of directors are to the corporation itself. And yes, it does seem to be something you see kind of taken for granted really in in in, in the media when uh, mm-hmm. when executives talk about their the, what they're doing the, the, the idea it seems to be very hardcore um foundational that you know we we our job is to you know maximize profits yeah it's uh yeah i call this uh the distinction between ideology and reality and uh, what happens in many cases in uh in our societies is that ideologies become so strong so as a result kind of like something that uh, influential people advocate for and they say they become actually uh, a fact without that being a fact Um, again the reality is that um, many directors feel that their fiduciary duty is to maximize stock price um, while that is not the case I think uh, in many boardrooms that is uh, a discussion that is happening uh, because to the extent that those two things are not necessarily the same thing, especially going back to your point around short-termism in the case that, you know, you can take lots of actions that maximize stock prices right now, but are actually detrimental to the organization in the long term. So how do you balance uh, some of those pressures is um, a really important question for management. Yes. Is this changing? Do you think this is going to change? The I think uh, it's going to change to the extent that uh, we have a really meaningful um, engagement and discussion in the public arena about um, what are the expectations uh, and what are the capabilities of uh, corporations to actually communicate and measure and disclose um, long-term information, strategic information. Because think about that. To the extent that the management team can actually not communicate uh, credibly uh, information about the long-term strategic direction of the company, then investors naturally shift towards short-term metrics. Uh, So what we need is much better, actually, much better information about the long-term strategic direction of the companies, much better information about the impact that the organization is having. And we need to have uh, also uh, much better understanding from investors about what those metrics and those pieces of information mean about the long-term prosperity of the corporation. And what do you see as the drivers there, George? Uh, I think uh, a couple of uh, a couple of drivers, right? So I think uh, what you find is increasingly a number of ju- jurisdictions are having uh, a mandatory disclosure regulations around uh, ESG information. Um, also, you find that uh, organizations such as uh, SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, um, and uh, 
the Climate Disclosure Project, um, the, the Task Force on Climate-Related uh, Financial Disclosures and so forth are doing um, very meaningful work in terms of creating um, an information infrastructure and standards and guidelines that uh, companies could use in order to communicate those types of impacts uh, to investors. Um, at the same time, on the uh, so this is on the supply side. On the demand side, we see some very meaningful efforts uh, to actually train and educate the investment community. Um, either from the CFA Institute or increasingly also from other organizations out there uh, in order to be able to actually, in some sense, digest those pieces of information. I think both the demand and supply side are equally important here. Right, right. That's interesting. Now, I know that recently Larry Fink, is it from BlackRock, sent a company, sent a letter saying that um, every company must not only deliver financial performance, but show how it makes a positive contribution to society. Is that a significant step? Do you think that will have an impact? I actually think that it is. Um, uh, with uh, Psyche Scotsadonis, uh, we developed this uh, this idea of around using actually systems thinking, um, this idea of what actually make moves the needle, what actually changes the system, and we have three uh, three categories around that, kind of like changing system parameters, changing system controls, and changing system mindset. And as you go along the spectrum, you find that the difficulty with which you are actually moving the needle uh, goes up, but actually the impact is also much higher. So. Inside the system, uh, you can change inputs or outputs. You can try and change um, the interrelationships or feedback loops, or you can try to change the paradigm of, of the system. And you can look actually capital markets. You can look at the business. You can look our capitalist system as a system of interrelated pieces. And we're living under a paradigm which basically says, the sole uh, role of business is to maximize profits. And here is, there is a paradigm shift uh, with the CEO of the largest investment management company in the world saying, but it also needs to show a positive contribution to society. So we call this um, a change in paradigm because it actually shifts the mindset of the system. We feel that it is actually um, a really meaningful contribution in the discussion about the role of the corporation society. This is coming from inside the investment community. Of course, the question is, does it have teeth, right? Kind of like, is there an enforcement mechanism? So I think uh, what you would want to see going forward is that BlackRock is putting uh, its money where its mouth is uh, in terms of its engagement strategies, in terms of educating internally uh, the folks that work there, um, developing the right kind of products um, in terms of uh, ESG integration and so forth. Um, so there needs to be some type of uh, enforcement faction and follow-up uh, to this. And I think then uh, the impact could be quite significant, especially because many other investors, it's not only Larry Fink, but Bill McNabb, for example, from Vanguard, and many, many other investors uh, are actually increasingly in integrating that kind of thinking uh, in the way that they interact with companies. So this could uh, be actually a very significant change in the way, in the mindset of the system. 
Yes, one to watch, George, as you say, and see where the money goes and see what the consequences of behavior. Now, you touched on this point earlier about voice. And I'm just wondering, you know, how well do you think investors have done holding corporates to account for their sustainability ESG record? And and does this matter? I think it matters a lot. And, um, you know, historically, what you found is that um, many of the large investment houses haven't been really um, concentrating on those types of issues, but increasingly they do. Um, So traditionally, smaller socially responsible investment funds have been leading many of those efforts uh, along with uh, uh, pension funds as well that have been active in this space. Uh, But increasingly, uh, more and more investors are coming to the table to have a discussion. I think... um, to a large extent, what is missing still from the market is um, uh, investors that are, in some sense, they are not coming to the table as in an adversarial way, but also coming to the table also in a very kind of like um, constructive, thoughtful way in terms of like trying to help uh, some companies improve. So instead of... um, in some sense, kind of like uh, pointing the finger and saying, you know, you have to improve this and you have to do this and so forth. Uh, how can we also have a discussion that is um, that is about the strategy of the organization, that is about how can we help you actually uh, be successful and as a result uh, improve your social impact on society? And I think that is... Um, a different approach that is uh, happening slowly. Um, I haven't seen that uh, so much uh, that's happening yet. Um, There are a few organizations that are taking that approach. And I think in some sense, that more kind of like collaborative aspect, because you need both. You need both the um, um, kind of like the more uh, activist aspect to it, you, you also need the more collaborative aspect, and I think those could be great complements to each other. Yes, yes. What 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 could create change here? Do you think, George? What could make change thing ha- happen? And I'm just thinking also about the climate in America. There's such a strong, well, such a divisive uh, atmosphere when it comes to uh, ideas about climate change, for example. And I guess you know, in in a sense, corporates work in an environment where you know where they live and they swim in the waters of you know where 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 people's attitudes and consumers' uh, views have a big influence. But uh, that's changing as well, I guess, generationally. Certainly, uh, in in some markets, the growth of millennials—they, you know, they they they're more driven by purpose. They care about these issues. Um, and I, how does that uh, change come through? Because it does seem sometimes with with investors that there are these agency questions that maybe you know you put your money in a fund, which puts it in, in is part of a bigger fund, which is part of you know, and how that all uh, you know sums up. To, 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 you know, the mechanism for change is, is uh, you know, a, a question, I guess, which we've touched on a little bit. But, I mean, do you see that changing? I think, uh, Fergal, it's, again, it's an excellent question. At the same time, it's a very hard one because I think that kind of, like, large-scale change that you're talking about is going to be um, uh, a, a very tough challenge uh, for anybody to tackle. Uh, if I was to mention one thing that has been uh, impeding progress is, um, in some sense, kind of like this prolonged misinformation that is happening about many, many aspects of um, 
societal kind of uh, uh, progress um, or societal issues um, such as climate change and so forth. So I think misinformation, lack of proper education about many of those um, issues is a key challenge that we need to tackle. And why is that? Because actually we need to start building consensus. As you said, there is, um, there is division within parts of the population about whether climate change is a big problem and how do you deal with it. There is also division in terms of like uh, what are the causes uh, and consequences of inequality uh, that we're facing and so forth. So I think getting, um, getting better data getting uh, high-quality information out there that can create more consensus within our communities about, um, about what are the real causes, what are the real consequences, and then, in some sense, um, developing an emerging consensus within, uh, within our communities that we need to act uh, for many of those things. And by the way, that action will take... Um, Governments will require corporations, will require NGOs. It will be a collaborative effort of all of us because they are extremely big problems and very pressing problems. But if I would say, again, um, what would make it for me um, kind of like stick uh, and make some of those changes durable would be um, much better information, uh, a debate about data and reality, and also uh, fighting um, this 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 increasing cancer of society, which is called fake news. Um, that's that's part of the issue here. Absolutely, absolutely. And what role has, do you think the government has? I mean, what's been very inspiring to see is that, notwithstanding you know Donald Trump's views on climate change and taking, you know, America out of the uh, Paris Accord and, you know, many of the other steps he's taken. The, the, there's been tremendous momentum still in, on the sustainability front with the cities, with uh, in, uh, mayors, with, with, with corporations and so forth. I'm just wondering how important, I mean, because I think a lot of what we've been talking about is been in the hands of investors and in the hands of corporations, how, you know, the ecosystem works and how change happens. What about the role of the government here in setting, you know, um, a strong a regulatory environment in terms of some of these questions we're talking about and the information and behaviour around uh, sustainability? Appropriate uh, government and smart regulation actually can be very helpful in accelerating change. You just mentioned actually something really important, which is that even though um, some of the regulations have been rolled back in the environmental space here in the U.S., uh, many companies are actually still moving ahead with their plans as they had. And why is that? Because actually market forces have already worked that way. In some sense, it's, uh, it's very hard uh, to stop some of that. You can, you can certainly delay uh, some of the change. And I think that's why appropriate government regulations, smart regulations are actually uh, very helpful in accelerating change and also very helpful in not wasting resources. 
because um, in the presence of uh, volatility in policies and uncertainty in the policies of government, what happens is that uh, there is a tremendous waste of resources as companies are trying to find what is the right path forward. So to the extent that you're increasing that uncertainty, some of those resources are going to be uh, wasted going in the future. So there is a great role for government here. And, um, you know, my hope has always been that we can increasingly reach uh, also consensus across countries about how we can have some uh, some collaboration, some cooperation in order to set uh, proper environmental regulations that touch all aspects of the globe, because many of the environmental problems that we face are actually global problems in nature, and we need to deal with them as such. And even if they are not, so even if you look at, uh, for example, um, something like water, that's a much more localized problem, uh, our supply chains and our consumer habits now are global in nature. So we're all affected uh, by by many of those issues. So having a conversation about how we can actually create um, markets and a leveling playing field for everybody will be a big challenge for governments going forward. Uh, looking to the future, and I think I know what you're going to say here, George, but I am interested, and it's something I've just been thinking about uh, again, is uh, looking at the future of the corporation, the rise of uh, new organizational structures or forms, the B Corp, uh, B Corporation, and, and so forth. What role do you see them playing? Are they a transitional stage to this? Because we're talking about this more uh, sustainable, this corporation, which is taking into account broader stakeholder perspective, taking into broader uh, account uh, non-financial factors. What, there's been tremendous growth uh, with the B Corps. Uh, just to finally get your sense of, 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 of how you see Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, we actually did, um, did some study a little bit on that uh, and uh, with uh, uh, Brona Ward and also with uh, some folks in uh, kind of like the Generation Foundation, Daniela Salzman. Uh, and uh, we had a conference here with CEOs of big corporations here at Harvard. And also David Blatt from uh, Generation came and we had a great debate about exactly the question that you asked. And I think one of the most interesting uh, aspects of that was um, this idea that <clears throat> in some sense, uh, all kinds of companies have a, can have a very strong purpose. All companies can try to actually have a positive social impact on society. And different companies are choosing different ways to actually signal that purpose that they are having. So some companies are adopting alternative corporate forms, such as the public benefit corporation or the flexible purpose corporation. Some other companies are becoming B Corps and they're becoming certified. Some companies are not becoming B Corps. They're just kind of like C Corps, but they are uh, issuing an integrated report or um, they are forming a board level sustainability committee and they're really integrating the strategy. They are making product portfolio decisions and so forth. So companies have a menu of options to choose with. And personally, I believe that diversity of approaches and that diversity of signals at the point uh, that we are in right now is a very healthy, actually, aspect of, of business in the sense that we're allowing for all these market signals and all these alternatives to actually uh, in some sense, play out 
uh, in the competitive landscape and see what works. We might see that um, an alternative uh, incorporation form is a fantastic way of actually forming a stronger organization that has a deep commitment to its purpose. Or we might find that the certification by, uh, in terms of B Corp is a fantastic way of doing that. Or we might find that actually, in some sense, uh, there are alternative ways of uh, signaling that, that purpose and that all companies, all uh, C Corps, uh, should uh, have a strong sense of purpose, and there are um, there are ways of uh, signaling and committing to that purpose through uh, through measurement and disclosure mechanisms uh, and so forth. So, they, or through, through some changes in their governance structure, right? Um, so, long story short, there are alternative ways of signaling that kind of purpose, and uh, we find different companies using in different ways yes yes absolutely well thank you so much what's next for you george what's on your mind what are some of the research questions that you're digging into over the coming years sure um so a, a couple of things that i'm working on right now that are very exciting to me uh one is um the whole field of big data and machine learning when it comes to esg data uh, so we're increasingly getting a better um ESG data infrastructure and using kind of like big data approaches and also machine learning approaches, we're trying to understand what are the pieces of information in the ESG space that are actually increasing the signal-to-noise ratio um, in order to, uh, to be able to predict uh, performance and uh, try to predict uh, future increases in sales or, uh, or decreases in costs and so forth. So that's, that is one domain. The second domain that I'm working on is in this idea of uh, how can we understand a little bit better the targets that companies are setting in the climate change space and whether those targets are actually aligned uh, with um, a two-degree scenario, for example. And um, we're also using uh, some of the fantastic work that uh, a couple of organizations in the environmental space have been doing in terms of science-based targets. And we're trying to understand whether actually setting stretch targets and um, forcing the organization to move towards those ambitious targets is making uh, organizations more innovative and how does this play out in the competitive landscape. And the third uh, piece of research that I'm pursuing right now is in uh, my work on corporate purpose. Um, and uh, already we have one paper in this, uh, in this domain where we use data from uh, half a million employees, um, and we're able to show that organizations with a strong sense of purpose, especially among um, middle management level, actually are able to perform better in the future. Uh, as they develop stronger relational contracts inside the company, and as a result, they're better able to actually implement uh, the strategic direction of the company. Uh, but now we're getting even more data on that dimension um, for millions of employees, and one of the questions that we want to explore is how can you create uh, purpose 
for all people inside the organization because I think we find that in the workforce we have a huge inequality not only in terms of pay but also in terms of like uh, the sense of meaning at work and purpose that people feel when they go to work every day in the morning. So we're trying to understand what are the mechanisms inside the organization to create truly purpose-driven organizations where everybody feels a sense of meaning. Wow, you've got a full plate there, George. <laughs> I wish you the very best of success with that, all this research you're doing, this important work. And thank you so much for taking your time, t- taking the time today to share all your insights and knowledge and research uh, for the sustainability agenda. My pleasure, Fred. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.